Welcome everybody to another episode of Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast. Joining us today is Michelle Silverblatt, an accomplished influencer marketing expert with over a decade of experience in the marketing industry. She's currently the global director of social media and influencer marketing at Pagaro, a cloud-based business management solution specifically designed for salons, spas, fitness studios, and more. Thank you so much for joining us, Michelle. Authenticity means really working with an influencer who wants to maintain the trust of their followers by building their following and nurturing their relationship with their community. Not necessarily just, oh, I want to get followers and I want to become this celebrity influencer, but it's more about them being themselves through and through and really building their community so that they're really engaged audience. And so I believe the most successful influencer partnerships are the ones where the influencer actually really believes in the product that they're promoting because the influencers know their audience best, right? So the content has to be authentic to that influencer or it won't be authentic to their following and the audience will see right through that. So that's what I think authenticity means is really just someone who truly cares about their followers and they're not just a number. Got it. And how do you make sure that you find an influencer that is authentic, right? You mentioned one thing around how they try to engage and grow their own audience, right? Is it just about growing followers or are they really concerned about and care about their followers and therefore create content that helps their followers? So that's obviously one trait to watch out for. But otherwise, as a brand, what else can you do to make sure that you identify certain influencers that are authentic? Yeah. I mean, I would say influencers that actually use their product without you even reaching out, right? So seek out those influencers that are already using your product and that love your product. We're actually doing that right now at Bagara, where we've contracted our super users, what we call them, of our product. And they do have a healthy following. You know, they have 10K to 30K followers, which to us is a really great sweet spot because that means they have a really engaged audience. So I would say that is really important. So either influencers that already use your product or influencers who have a strong need to switch over and kind of go through that research process, create relationships in the community. A lot of our current influencers that are more well-established and more celebrity status, I would say, have also an entire community of people that they know who use our product. So we've branched out that way, right? So we started with one and now we have three for example, and they're all connected and that's an authentic relationship and authentic people that really want to use our product. So it just depends on where you're at with your relationships. Got it. More recently in the last few episodes, I've been talking to some of our guests and we've been trying to identify strategically for a brand what makes more sense. Like let's say you have some budget and you're going to try out influencer marketing for one of your products. And by default, a lot of times as a marketer, you want to get as much reach as possible. And you're trying to identify the maximum number of influencers you can work with. But is that the best way to go about things? Or do you handpick a few and try to work with them more closely so that this authentic relationship can be developed? Yeah. So this is a very interesting topic because I'm actually going through this right now where we're working with in the UK, an influencer that has a ton of followers and a huge audience and a huge following and more of that celebrity, but she doesn't use our product. So we found it a little bit challenging to get her to post about the product really authentically, right? Where in the US right now, we're working with some really engaged influencers. Right now we're working with 14 total influencers from the US and the UK, but in the US, we have about 10 influencers we're working with. And I would say five of them are super engaged and super into our product and really authentically promoting it. 
right? And the other five have gotten on board onto the product and it's been a little slow. To answer your question, I would say focus on fewer, bigger, better is my strategy and is going to be my strategy going into 2024 because those are the relationships that you want to foster. And you also want to ensure that you have a long-term relationship with these influencers so that they can partner with you year after year because that'll just help your business grow, they're growing, and then it just grows from there. So really focus on fewer, bigger, better. Got it. Another thing that you mentioned in a previous response was around the objectives for influencer marketing, right? As a brand, you know, the obvious thing is you want to build more visibility, you want to get more attention, but we are also starting to move closer towards conversions, driving ROI. How's that conversation going around and what's your opinion on it? Yeah, so I think influencer marketing really is full funnel, right? So it has awareness, engagement, and then also conversions, but there's different types of content within the different buckets of these goals. So when we're talking about conversions, when I started here at Vagaro about six months ago, they didn't have any influencer marketing infrastructure set up. So I kind of had to build that. So currently how we're doing it is every influencer has a sales page that they have and they drive traffic to that sales page. So they do a post, they drive traffic, we attach a UTM parameter to that link. And that way on our end, we can track how much traffic they're driving to the site from each post. We track how many people are signing up through their link. So that's really how we're tracking the conversion piece of it. However, you know, we're in year one of influencer marketing at Bagaro. So my goal really is to focus on awareness engagement this first year. And yes, we are getting signups, but really focus in those two buckets. And then next year, I believe that the conversions will really follow and pick up, but we have to get our name out there in order for the conversions to happen. Got it. And you mentioned something about an influencer marketing infrastructure, right? When you got started at Vigaro, it wasn't existing. You had to set it up. What does that infrastructure look like? So if somebody wants to start influencer marketing today, where do they start? Okay. Yeah. So when I joined the company, no one knew much about influencer marketing. So I was coming in, helping teach and guide everyone. So I would say ensure that you have a great legal representative to help you with the influencer contracts because that's step one and that's super important. But I would also say if you're doing influencer marketing in-house, have a system for the posting schedules of the influencers, how they deliver their content for review, what is the UTM parameters going to look like. If you develop that ecosystem of how you're going to be communicating with the influencer, that's half the battle, right? And then even before that, I would say develop a relationship with the influencer. That's super important. You want to develop a relationship with the influencer outside of just what they're posting. Because what I've learned is some of our top influencers, I have the best relationships with and the influencers that are driving the most conversions and the most relationship building and the most engagement Those are the ones where I've really taken time to get to know and learn about and also hear them out, right? So they have suggestions on how we could do things better for our software and what they need. So yeah, it's definitely a long road when you build it from scratch. And especially if you're not working with an agency and you're doing it all in-house, I would say take some time to really get set up before you contract these influencers or else you'll really be building the plane while you're flying it, which is a little bit of what we're doing here at Vigaro this year. But we're learning a ton for next year. So that's really what matters. Our guest today is Oliver Lewis, the CEO, founder, and group managing director at The Fifth Group. The Fifth is an award-winning creative agency putting influential talent at the heart of their brand's clients' advertising. The agency was founded on a mutual understanding of what it means to have real influence 
and how to wield that power authentically and responsibly. So let's get started. Do you think it's a challenge in the influencer marketing space for agencies as well as brands to get data that they can trust as well as make sure is authentic? For sure, it is. And because it's entirely reliant on having, as I said, authenticated linked data at the source. You know, access to the platform's APIs is becoming more widely accepted, although we went through a sort of curbing where a huge number of platforms lost access. But as a result of platforms losing access to potentially to graph APIs and having access to that data, there was a huge amount of modeling that happened upon the top of it. That modeling, I mean, actually, the disparity between five or six different data platforms over a single creator's data, it can be pretty vast. Like we're talking about swings of between 25 to 30%. And that's, that's not okay, realistically, when you're making media decisions and creative decisions and pricing decisions based on data that's inaccurate. So I think in a planning stages, it's really challenged. When it comes to execution, it's much easier because ultimately there is a relationship and a transaction occurring and there's therefore a willingness to activate with the real data and access to that platform. So I think it's the planning where there's an issue and when decisions are being made, there's perhaps an issue. But I would also suggest we've come a long way. And actually, there are some incredible partners in this space that have a good grip on running their platforms and access to the data responsibly and are well authenticated and backed by the platforms to do so. So it's definitely improved, but it will be a challenge. And I think it continues to be a challenge in a measurement place in post-campaign. And that's got to be one of the key areas of focus for every agency in this space right now. Is, is, you know, how can we measure it effectively in order to grow investment because those two intrinsically linked? Let's talk a little bit more about the platform API part, right? And there are hundreds of different platforms. Of course, there are the big ones like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, et cetera, right? But there are many others that are more niche, let's say Substack, uh, OnlyFans for that matter, you know, so many others where creators and influencers are active, making money. A lot of these platforms actually don't even have open APIs. Very few of them actually provide a platform-owned API or platform-maintained API. And I'm going to make a small shameless plug here. And that's the problem we are trying to solve with Philo, because what we are trying to do is take away that pain from brands and agencies and we take on that pain to manage all these hundreds of APIs so that at the user end, which is in our case, brands and agencies, they just have to deal with one API. But like you said, it's been a pain to manage these APIs, right? Like as a agency owner or somebody who's working closely with brands, how are you trying to navigate this ever-changing landscape? Like just a few days ago, Twitter you know, announced that they're going to bring a pricing model to their APIs and that may or may not work for a lot of people, right? And, you know, I think a large part also is as platforms, do you think platforms are actually losing out as influencer marketing grows because it's taking away money from their ad revenue and it's putting money into the hands of creators, right? Do you think that's what concerns them? Ultimately, our, our philosophy on this is to be tech agnostic. I think we made a decision relatively early that we weren't going to build necessarily proprietary tech into this space for exactly that reason. But I think keeping up with the pace of change, uh, although technology, you know, we do have technology in the business, but having a one in-house proprietary solution is going to lose pace and going to be incredibly expensive to keep pace with from our perspective. And, you know, we wanted to focus on 
our priority, which is around creative and strategy and relationships and human intelligence, because that's really where we add a huge amount of value. So for us, it's about finding the right partners. And it's about having the right tech stack and constantly continuously auditing those partners, ensure that we have the best providers, that we give the best bespoke solutions to our clients at any one time. You know, there are plenty of ways in which you can ingest data and create white labeled solutions for your clients from in-house. So that's our role. That's our, our philosophy on it. Others will disagree, I think. But you know, it's really refreshing that there are a lot of new platforms coming into the space and there are a lot of people trying to solve this because the economy is growing. So I think that as the overall creative economy and as over-influence marketing as a share of digital revenue grows, obviously, as we saw in programmatic, the technology is going to boom and almost there'll be an oversupply of technology partners. So really, it's I'd rather put more effort into auditing, uh, verifying who are the best partners for us and our clients and ensuring that we partner with the best. That's how we approach it. And so we welcome new entrants into the market and we welcome new ideas because frankly, we just need to get the best results. Makes sense. And what do you think about the whole story angle from the platform side? Do you think they worry that, you know, all this is taking money away from their hands? Naturally they will um, because there's a, a huge amount of business happening on their land that they don't have a cut of. I think it benefits them to have a healthy, burgeoning, and you know, creator economy existing within their environments and their platforms. And they do a huge amount. They talk a good game around supporting creators, and in many cases, they do. And there are monetization tools, and there is support for creators there. But naturally, they're going to want more revenue to flow through the platforms and through their paid solutions. But look, I think you know what goes in their favor right now is that what's happening in this space, particularly as we talk about paid social becoming potentially less effective that the true game changer within a paid social environment is the creative itself it always has been ad creative is incredibly important well who makes the best ad creative in 2023 and beyond this it's influencers there's no shadow of a doubt on that and therefore the convergence of paid marketing and paid social in particular and influencer and i dare say across a lot of digital channels including digital out of home you're going to see that convergence i mean if paid social is not a part of your influencer marketing mix in every single campaign then i don't frankly know how you're achieving the levels of reach and engagement that you're setting out for your client i think it's probably almost essential at this point so there is a role in the platforms are getting a slice of this and increasingly they will get a larger slice. Makes sense. In your last response, you were talking about IMTV as well, the influencer marketing trade body. I spoke recently with uh, Scott, who is the director general there. You are a board member as well. What is your role with IMTV? What's your vision? How is IMTV helping this industry? Oh, it's, it's phenomenal. It's so important. It's a real sign of its growing maturity that we now have a trade body that's being recognized by CAP, by AASA. It's being recognized by the government select committees as the trusted voice that is truly now represented. And I think at last count, Scott will probably correct me on his podcast of 13 members at this point, 13, 14, and growing very fast. But it's, a, it's more than that. It's actually the fact that we have WPP, Whaler, Takumi, ourselves, Ben, to name a few that, you know, are the leaders in this space and frankly, some of the biggest. So it's been very, very important for us to unify our voice. You know, like, for example, the ASA and CMA combined regulations in the UK that were released over in the last week or so. Okay. I think they go potentially too far, but individually, as individual voices trying to lobby any element of sense or change at any regulation as it comes thick and fast into this space is going to be meaningless. You know, we have to be a combined and unified voice. We have to trust each other. Investment will pour in and all ships rise. 
if we can stick together around this and we can start to get some conformity. The issue with the space at times is that every one of us is entirely focused on our own USPs and driving our own competitive advantage, right? And therefore, we're using our own language and we're using our own standards and we're all trying to get one up on each other around the hottest issues that we might be able to answer because that's, of course, important in order to win clients or retain clients. But realistically, that's probably the wrong move. You know, we, what we should be doing is building a wealth of trust, having a much better standardized view on the language and on standards. And therefore, clients generally and more broadly will enter into this space and they all spend more money. So I think that's what we've all come around the table and understand to be important. I hope that you know we attract more members and that we can continue to have a bigger voice because ultimately, nobody else realistically, I mean, ISBA's doing a great job, for example, at, at creating standards in the UK, which is a trade body for brands. But realistically, there hasn't been a reputable and unified voice for influence marketing in the UK until now. And uh, so I think it's a really great step and Scott's doing a brilliant job and we'll continue to support it. Yeah, I think, you know, we all win together. I think that's something that we believe in as well. And for the entire creator economy to grow, it's necessary that everybody works together. And sure. yeah, I mean, end of the day, you're running a business, you want to find your USPs, you want to talk about it. But if the size of the pie increases, everybody wins, right? And that includes businesses like ours and yours, and it includes creators also and brands also, right? Everybody needs to win in the equation for this entire segment to grow, you know, in a more sustainable format. Absolutely. I preach that from the rooftops. <laughs> yeah. Talking about hot issues, yeah. give me one controversial hot take on influencer marketing that you believe in, but maybe others don't. It is my hot take and view that by, let's say, 2028, a TikTok influence will run as an independent for the presidency of the United States. Our guest today is Scott Guthrie, the Director General at Influencer Marketing Trade Body and an influencer marketing advisor to various brands, agencies, and influencer marketing platforms. He's also the host of the Influencer Marketing Lab podcast and a member of various editorial and advisory boards for influencer marketing. When we talk about influencer campaigns per se, you know, there is this belief that it's maybe more short-term, short-lived, attention span is low. As a brand, when you're basically working with influencers, how do you make a campaign impactful, but also make sure that it survives for some time or, you know, retains its value over time? Or is that even the right kind of expectation to have? Yeah, again, it's an interesting one. I'm going to push back on you saying attention spans are getting shorter because that is the perceived wisdom. But TikTok is actually lengthening its videos. You have seen Hilton Hotels a few weeks ago. It launched an ad campaign or an influencer campaign on TikTok, which was over 10 minutes. So it's not all about 15 second or 30 second or 60 second TikToks. It's about understanding what your audience is, having a point of view, understanding where you're playing as well. You know, where's your audience hanging out? Going back to this Hilton ad, I think it really understood the platform well, and it understood its audience well. The same video wouldn't have translated quite as well on YouTube, for example, but it really knew the nuances, the trends, it knew the creators, and so really understood what was happening 
on that platform? Who were the main influencers on that platform? And what were the inside jokes happening at that time? So that means you have to know the platform inside out. You have to know your audience inside out. And you have to know the right people that can translate your messages, i.e. the creators on that platform. So that's a good point, right? Which means that as a brand also, your strategy is very different if you are doing something on TikTok versus Instagram versus YouTube, right? And does that come down to budgets again at the end of the day? Like you don't want to ideally just use the same piece of content and spray it everywhere. So do you think it's a budget thing or how would small brands try to nail this better? Again, scrolling back to what your objectives are, for sure is there's a budgetary concern, but it's understanding what your objectives are and understanding where your audience is. So, you know, if you're building community, if you're building awareness, if you're building brand equity, I don't know if TikTok's the right place for it. You know, I'll happily have a discussion about it and be convinced. I don't know possibly enough about that. I would think, you know, longer form content on YouTube would help create a community. If you're looking for really smart aesthetics, then Instagram might be the right place for it. So it depends on what your objectives are and the demographic of your audience. But there is this great priming effect of having created content on different platforms. And we know that if it starts off on TikTok, we're more likely to be positively disposed as consumers when we see that brand advertising on Instagram. If we see a piece of content on a YouTube ad that we've already seen on TikTok, we're less likely to sort of have our thumbs hovering over the, the skip button on the ad. And if we see it on the telly box on, on sort of traditional linear television, again, we have a more positive sentiment towards that piece of content if we first seen it on TikTok or Instagram. So there's this priming effect. And I think going back to budgets, I think a few years ago, creator content was on the peripheries of the marketing mix. And I think it's front and center now and not necessarily repurposing, but working with the creator. It starts off on a platform, maybe uh, that'd be the nucleus of the program. But that same creator then might produce content which works with out of home. It might be on a YouTube video. It might be in a live event. You know, it might be part of email marketing. So there are different ways of working with the same creator. So it's not necessarily repurposing the content, but it's working harder with that one content creator. Got it. Did Mr. Beast come to your office with a briefcase full of money and just give it to you? <laughs> I mean, virtually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Joining us today is Colleen Stoffer, a global integrated consumer, creator, and business marketing expert. That was a mouthful, but we will get to know a lot about her and why she's amazing at all of these things. Tell us a little bit more why you think or what you think Creative Juice does differently compared to other companies in the creative economy? Yeah, there's so many, so many creator companies out there right now. You always see the information, they'll publish their list of all the creator companies going out. But I will say, you know, no one platform is doing having everything in one place like we are. So having this creator run their business, do their taxes, get funding if they want to get funding, have a community that they can tap around these business questions and problems. And then of course, banking. So a lot of them use PayPal or Venmo, or they don't even have a business bank account. They you know, go to a traditional bank and those banks don't understand them. So the unique thing about us is having everything in one place, which we've heard is a huge pain point. Like creators 
they'll have 20 tabs open, they'll be using 20 different things, or just not feel educated on how to do certain things like their taxes. You know, we've talked to some that maybe haven't done their taxes in a in a minute. And so really helping and educating. So that's probably the biggest differentiator. It's like that one place, you know, we haven't invented anything new, right? Like all these things exist. They just haven't been repackaged and marketed to creators or given creators education to know how to use them or put them all in one place. And the other thing I'll kind of add about our product is, you know, we have two options. So there are companies out there that are giving funding for like the top 1% of YouTubers. We really are reaching the whole, the entire creator economy, whether you have 5,000 subscribers or 5 million. And so we're launching the Juice Club, which is really exciting. And so there's still going to be always a free option, we believe, free tools, banking should always be available for creators. And then there's a club membership option, which just gives you more access to some community and education and resources. Awesome. And I did read about, am I right that you also offer some kind of funds to creators to get started or help with their business? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's rev share. So it's not a loan. I think that's like a big thing too. We're really taking a bet on creators. And one of our big values is we grow as creators grow. So we're incentive aligned and giving creators anything from like one month advance to up to a year of funding. So they can have just that more consistent cash flow because, you know, it is really clumpy as a creator, as an influencer, you might have a brand deal you know, one month and then not have one for another five months. And so giving them that consistent cash flow so they can feel a little bit more stable. And the only thing that they need to do is just keep up on the pace of content that they had been for the past, you know, six, 12 months. So we can predict those earnings. Awesome. And you also talked about a little bit about how other brands are maybe focusing on the top one or two percent creators, whereas you're looking at pretty much the entire group. There is this growing creator middle class, as they call it, right? Mm -hmm. And there is a common misconception. I feel that people think that creators or influencers make a lot of money because a lot of the big deals do get media attention and right. you know people get surprised by that and everybody wants to become a creator but it's also hard work right it's a lot of hard work and more often than not people need this kind of help because brands pay you like net 60 or net 90 days oftentimes mm-hmm. so even though you might have done a great promotion you still don't have the money in the bank and you're trying to manage all of that cash flow is there something creative juice is doing in particular for this growing creator middle class Yes, absolutely. And first of all, my 11-year-old niece was here last weekend. She's like, I want to be a YouTuber. And I said, it's actually a lot of work. So don't like think that these people just create a video and then they make all this money. Like it is a lot of work. I think that's like another point that we all need to make with this economy. It's really hard work and it is lonely, as you mentioned. And then on top of that, it, it is that business side of it. So you're right. Like I've been guilty. I've been on the brand side and we've been, you know, haven't built paid a creator in not a juice, but in a previous life, <laughs> haven't paid a creator in, you know, 90 days. And it's just because these brand AP departments are just small and slower. And so that's another problem we're solving at juice. We are doing brand advances. So for certain creators, especially creators working with talent agencies, it's, you know, less risky for us and more efficient for them, but being able to give them that money once they've, you know, completed their, their content 
upfront. And that's another huge thing we heard from these creators. They said, the minute I post my content, I kind of want that like equal dopamine hit of getting paid immediately. And then if I have to wait 90 days, it almost isn't even like they kind of don't care anymore because you're like, oh, yeah, well, I kind of already spent that money and I already posted that content. So we are solving that too with our brand advances. That's awesome. What are some other creator marketing trends or influencer marketing trends that you're observing? Yeah. So one of them is the rise of creator educators. I think this is really cool. You know, we work with a lot of them. We work with Patty Galloway, John Yoshehi, and in really having these new experts come up and help other creators, right? So I think that's really cool because you haven't really seen that before in this creator economy. And so paying attention to those creator educators, there's more and more on all different platforms, you know, ones that really focus on YouTube versus Instagram, et cetera. So I think that's going to be a fast growing trend is is more creators helping other creators. Another big thing I would say is the de-influencing. I love this one because a lot of time you see these influencers you've been following forever and then you can tell when it's just a really cheesy or obvious ad that they're doing versus product that they actually use, right? And so I actually love this because I love like the opposite of other things sometimes, but de-influencing is an interesting trend where it's like literally influencers, creators using products that they wouldn't recommend and why, because that helps them feel more authentic and also build their audience to trust them even more so. So I think you're going to see more of that. And then the third one I would say is having creators really own their audience. And we can talk about this more with like Web3, but, you know, more and more creators are taking back control of their audience, right? So if you think about it, they don't own their audience on Instagram or YouTube. Those platforms own that community, own that audience. But a lot of creators are starting newsletters so they can get all email addresses from their audience on other platforms, or they're pulling all their audience from other channels to like a different community platform, or even Honestly, some of them are starting, you know, CPG brands. That's really more the bigger ones. But that's just a way for them to control their audience. And I think Web3 is going to help solve that. And actually, Elon Musk just tweeted today that he's going to give content creators access to emails of their subscribers. So that's a cool change. I think the, the owning the audience helps these creators just feel that control. I mean, it's their business. It's their IP. It's their content. And we definitely need to see more of that. Joining us today is Jennifer Quigley-Jones, the CEO and founder of Digital Voices. Digital Voices is an agency that drives growth for brands through the power of influence. Prior to Digital Voices, Jennifer worked at YouTube as a strategic partner manager, helping creators to grow on the platform. As a marketer, you want to drive conversions. And more often than not, as marketers ourselves, we know exactly what we want the influencer to talk about, but you also don't want to try and prescribe, right? And what do you suggest your customers? How do they go about working with their influencers? Do they give them full creative freedom to go figure out whatever they want to talk about? Or is there some leeway into driving how the conversation should go? I think there's a kind of a plethora of options dependent on what your aim is. If your aim is to like position your brand in a certain way or get brand awareness for a certain product, then fine. Like I understand be very prescriptive. But one of my biggest gripes is when marketers decide to only engage influencers that look like their target customer, their dream target customer in their head. You know, when marketers have like these hilarious kind of awkward customer personas like 
Digital Dave. And they're like, okay, we only want to work with influencers and speak to Digital Dave. And I'm like, right. But that doesn't mean they have to be Digital Dave. Their audience might be Digital Dave, which again, it's always some stock image of a smiling man. Their audience might be Digital Dave, but the influencer themselves doesn't have to look like Digital Dave. So I would say like when marketers are too prescriptive in who their ideal influencer is, they miss out on huge opportunities, especially if it's conversion focused. So what we tend to say is if you're on the brand awareness side or you're trying to change your brand positioning, okay, we understand we'll source creators who match what you're looking for. We will insist on diversity in the campaign. So we hope you sign off a diverse shortlist. When you get to the brands that are trying to do that performance growth customer acquisition focus, this is where we really push them to test new verticals, and new people and new approaches. So you may not have tried working with car channels. You may not have tried working with drag queen channels. That's where you unlock the gold because you unlock people that brands might not have considered working with before. They might not consider they have a natural affinity with, but they use that influencer to open an entire new customer base. I get really excited when we find an option there. So for example, we were working with a tech client and we were at VidCon having dinner and I think we'd had too much wine. And the client said, oh, women don't convert for this product. He was like, everyone's tried. If you can make women convert, you're unlocking like millions of dollars spent. Like it doesn't happen. You can try. So we went back to the drawing board. We changed the talking points. We had like our example video. We had a woman on our team do the voiceover so that when the influencers would look at an example video, female influencers would see a female example. And from the next like three months later, all their top converters were female run channels and with often female-led audiences. So for a while, we like really transformed how this tech company thought about their customer base. And that's where like the power of trusting influencers and being strategic and testing and scaling is really exciting. Yeah, I think one thing that you said is amazing piece of advice and it is actually contrary to popular opinion or what people typically do, which is trying to identify areas that you think may not be the best fit, but the audience is there, right? You haven't explored that audience for your brand and you're just trying to fit into those personas for your influencers who are your ideal buyers. And that's not actually what you're intending to do here. You want to find that their audience should have this target persona. And I see that a lot more with B2B marketers also, just because they tend to define their audiences even more tightly with you know specific job titles and what part of the world they are in and so on. They get very, very specific, right? And then it becomes hard to find these kind of influencers as well. Yeah, we did a B2B report about this actually, because you're right, B2B marketers are often very prescriptive. They're like, oh, I want to influence IT decision makers. They're like, okay, where are you going to find them? They're like, oh, I don't know, LinkedIn ads? You're like, oh, okay. I don't know if they'll be inspired by that. Whereas if you actually talk to developers and CTOs, ask them what they watch, ask what they do. They normally don't have TikTok because they're worried. They understand the implications of data. So it's like often not TikTok, but ask what they watch and they will watch really weird, geeky stuff on YouTube. Exactly. It's, you know, <laughs> okay, let's, well then why don't you sponsor? So we did a whole B2B campaign influencing IT decision makers that partnered with maths creators, science creators, like people who answered those like odd questions around the world. And it drove vast number of traffic and email subscriptions and competition entries because we wanted to give the potential customers something. It didn't come from targeting job titles on LinkedIn. It came from targeting them because they were people who had real interests. 
Like we were talking to another company that said, oh, our target audience is CEOs of scale-ups. And I was like, well, as a CEO of a scale-up, I can tell you that every hobby I have, I obsessively have to get really good at it. So let's sponsor hobbyist channels in your target market. Let's sponsor like golf channels. You want to not be embarrassing on a golf course. You want to improve your golf game. So of course you'll watch Rick Shields golf. That to me is a perfect B2B partnership because the customers are really high value. There may only be one in 50,000 of those viewers as your customer. But if in that integration, you can inspire them to learn more about the product, express their interest, go to the site and then become a customer, that's worth it. I find that example very interesting. Let's try to probe a little bit deeper into that, right? Let's say you are a brand who, where your ideal buyers actually go out and play golf a lot and therefore watch a lot of videos around golfing and how to get better at it. How do you try to insert, let's say, a B2B product into somebody who is actually doing content around golf? <laughs> so there are a few different ways and this is where like it depends on the exact client. And this is where I think like, you need an influencer agency that can help you be strategic in planning this. And this is where I think a lot of teams that try to do everything in-house end up with no creative space to do this work because they're spending so much time on influencer contracts. How do they have the headspace for a strategy? And then how do they get the buy-in from a wider team on the strategy? But I think it's really important to find like an agency partner that can help you be strategic with this planning. Say the product is Zoom, right? Zoom wants to sell more subscriptions. Okay. Golf, really weird. You'd say to the creator, make a video about the top five drivers and insert 60 seconds about our brand. In that 60 seconds, you can tailor the messaging. So you get all the right traffic because the video looks just like their normal video. And then in that 60 seconds, you control the messaging. And that's where you need to be really strategic because as a brand, if you miss and waste that opportunity, you've wasted your money. So if I was Zoom, I'd be like, right, Rick Shields talks about how when he communicates with his team and when he travels for his golf tournaments and you know to cover golf stuff around the world, he will Zoom his editors back home. And that's how he makes remote working and his lifestyle work for him. So you've got like a personal use case where you're like, oh, I trust Rick Shields. And he said that. Then you need to move on to the incentive, right? So what is the incentive to get someone to take an action and also take an action now so that you can attribute that interest? I would probably craft a Zoom-related Rick Shields competition. So you know the people watching him want advice on golf. So why don't you say, hey, I'm actually, I've partnered with Zoom. And if you click the link in the description or scan this QR code on screen now, you can enter the chance for me to do a personal coaching session with you over Zoom. I will give you a golf lesson. And then when they click through, you could have a qualification. So you could have that you have to be in a certain country to enter the competition. You could have that you need to provide your business details to enter a competition. But then by the time someone has seen that segment, watched the video, clicked through, signed up, they've learned about Zoom. They're going to have to experience Zoom if they win the competition. They trust Rick Shields. They're excited to tell people about this golf competition they've entered. And then you've got all their data as well. So you can add them to a marketing list. So that's where you need to, I think, be so much more strategic when you're planning like a B2B campaign with a high value customer. Because the only way that you won't waste budget is if you make sure you win their attention and win their data. Joining us today is Gregory Curtis, a multicultural marketing subject matter expert and media specialist with nearly 15 years of experience in strategic sales, existing and emerging media, 
business strategy, and culturally relevant marketing. Now, what that means, we are going to find out with Greg pretty soon. But additionally, Greg has experience in sales, marketing, supply chain management, and account management. And with that, he's really gained a unique perspective on marketing, specifically in multicultural influencer marketing. Thank you so much for joining us, Greg. It's great to have you here. No, I am so grateful to be here. Thank you so much for reaching out. I'm super pumped about today's conversation. It's nothing that really gets me going than multicultural influencer marketing. All right. Awesome. So we are excited to have you here and let's just start over there, right? One of the things that I ask almost all of my guests is give me one hot controversial take on influencer marketing, something that you believe in, but maybe not everybody else agrees to. You know, I think a lot of organizations believe that the messaging around their diversity, equity, and inclusion and having a few pillars in-house from an internal perspective could potentially empower them from an external perspective. But it's sometimes the culture of an organization actually works at its own demise. So I think that that is controversial in itself. I know that a lot of organizations really want to get their finger on the pulse on multicultural influencer marketing. And to understand your audience, you're going to need people that understand your audience internally as well. Awesome. So let's dive a little bit deeper on that, right? What is multicultural influencer marketing or multicultural marketing in that sense? Yeah. So I like to think multicultural marketing is inclusive and more than one layer. There's so many approaches to it. And what I mean when I say that, we can just start off with me, for example. I am a mixed race man. I grew up in the Midwest. So my identity is I am a U.S. citizen born and raised in the Midwest, Chicago. My father has Southern roots to Mississippi. My mother has roots to the Caribbean islands from Puerto Rico, specifically Arecibo and Caguas. I speak Spanglish, I speak English, and I'm a first-generation undergrad and graduate-level holder. So when you think about all these different identities and what it means to exist in this one body, those are different segments in how one could market themselves to me from a multicultural perspective. You're not only highlighting my ethnicity, but you could be highlighting the region. There's a culture in the region that I am from. There's also not only the race, the ethnic, the class, there's a class cultural element there. There's also a queer element there. There's an audience there as well. So when I think about multicultural marketing, I really lean very heavy on intersectionality. And that is a philosophical school of thought that was developed by Kimberly Crenshaw. She is a professor at Columbia University, their school of law, and she's an activist. And I think that for marketers, using that lens, using that social political lens can actually really empower us to uncover new audiences that are obsessed with our brand. Got it. And we are starting to see more brands embrace this better as well. We are starting to see campaigns that seem more diverse, seem more inclusive. But as a marketer, how do you make sure that you're honestly actually making that effort and not seeming like someone who's trying to take advantage of this? Yeah. So that's a great question. I think the first thing you need to do is you need to listen. You need to understand your audience. You need to engage with the customers in the right context. You need to make sure that you reflect the society that you want to see and the society that actually currently exists. You need to make sure that the messaging is customized and tailored. How you would market yourself to a 28-year-old queer white male that lives in Chelsea, New York, may not be the same way you would market yourself to a Jamaican queer male in Miami. The cultural and marketing messaging may be a little different while also still very similar. And I think that when you fine tune that, you can 
can reinvent your brand to reflect the multicultural brand and you can really be involved in a very authentic conversation. So I think that there's a lot of things at stake, but I think that the more inclusive you are and really saying, hey, I need to understand my audience and centering your customer, you will always win. Got it. And can you tell us a little bit more about a campaign that you remember that was maybe recent or something that really touched you as well that actually takes care of all these multicultural aspects really well? Yes. Honestly, I really have to give it up to Edelman. Edelman is a fantastic public relations firm that, in my opinion, they compete with all of the agent holding companies like a Leo Burnett that sits under Publicis. And the reason why I say that is they have a very close relationship with Unilever. And the campaigns that they did from 2019 to 2022 with Dove, specifically the Hair Care Act for Black and Brown people, was so impactful. And now they're doing a new hair campaign with Unilever around hair dye. So this has nothing to do with race. This is like, hey, millennials, you have gray hair now. And, you know, it's okay in accepting the gray. But if you don't want to accept the gray, we got you as well. We have products that are natural. They won't hurt and harm you or introduce chemicals that could potentially put you at risk for cancer. But we also want you to know it's okay to love your gray. And I think that that, again, is a multicultural type of conversation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I remember the campaign and that's the beauty of a campaign that really touches you, right? You remember the campaign, even if it's four years ago, there are so many that we remember from our childhood also, right? Not in this context, but there are so many of these campaigns that stick to us as consumers, right? And definitely the Dove campaign in terms of diversity and inclusiveness is one of those really good examples. When did you really start recognizing what multicultural influencer marketing is and why is it important? When did this come to you? So it came to me, I want to say around 2012 with the very popular vloggers from YouTube. There was one that I was absolutely obsessed with. He was a white queer male. His name was Michael Buckley. And he actually ended up becoming such a superstar on the YouTube platform that he filled in for Regis and Kelly on ABC daytime television, which is a very big deal to sit in for Regis and Kelly. That being said, I realized right then and there, there's something here. There's power here. He actually ended up getting endorsements. And then I started to see a plethora of people that were not only queer, disabled, black, brown. Like I was like, wait a minute, there's something here. Between 2012 and 2014, I believe that that was when a lot of marketers started to realize there's power and there's also a cost-effective built-in audience that follows these influencers versus going to the traditional general market route with, hey, let's get Halle Berry, let's get Angelina Jolie, let's get Michael Jordan. Awesome. Talking about diversity in marketing, right? You also have a diverse background in terms of working in sales, marketing, supply chain, account management. How has that made you a better marketer? Yes. So I typically like to view projects from every angle, every side, and exhaust them from beginning to end. It can be a little bit cumbersome, but I want to make sure that no crumbs are left behind. I want to make sure that my clients are not only set up for success, that we really have optimized from every particular angle. And I think that the side that has empowered me the most has actually been the account management side on the vendor side, because I'm actually able to see the scrappiness of a campaign, the areas of opportunity of a campaign, and then growth ops that they walk away with 
and how better to optimize their campaigns. So for me, the biggest lesson that I've learned in all these roles, whether it be supply chain management, client side, vendor side, agency side, whatever side of the table I am on, is that if I'm not centering my customers' KPIs, their goals, their objectives, and actually being authentic and true to their brand, I'm actually setting them up for failure. And so I always center the customer and not just my agency or my vendor, not just the client, but I'm actually centering their customers. When I'm talking to them, I am saying, hey, I would never want you to sell this particular product to that audience. It's not relevant. And as much as they may want them, if it's not relevant, it's not relevant. Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast is brought to you by Philo. Philo is the easiest way to get access to authenticated creator data from hundreds of different platforms. To know more about Philo, visit getphilo.com. That's get P-H-Y-L-L-O.com. Also, make sure to search for Influencer Marketing Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any of your favorite podcast listing platforms. And don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Philo, thank you so much for listening.